Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Happy Friday. It is July 10th. Alex, how are you? I'm feeling very lucky, Connie. Why is that, Alex? Because we just celebrated our 15th anniversary. Oh, happy anniversary. <laughs> happy anniversary to you. <laughs> we have a few stories to run through today before we get to our interviews, which we both really enjoyed, and hopefully you will as well. We're going to start off this week with the buzzy online brokerage Robinhood. We last talked about Robinhood the week that a 20-year-old college student in Nebraska took his own life because he saw that his balance had dropped to a negative $730,000 on the platform and didn't realize that the number factored in some incomplete trades. We chatted a bit then about the compelling but also dangerous gamification of trading that eight-year-old Robinhood is known for. Now this week, the New York Times delves into the culture in a must-read story that addresses how the ease of trading at Robinhood has turned it into a cultural phenomenon and a highly valued company, but also a danger to some of its customers. There was a lot of useful information in the story, including that the average age of a Robinhood customer is 31, so not 20. Half of its customers have never invested before, which I think we already knew. The company is also paid more if customers trade more, which is very much an incentive to get them to buy and sell as if they were in Vegas. That's because, per the Times, it makes money through a practice known as payment for order flow. This is a common and complex process, but each time a Robinhood customer trades, Wall Street firms actually buy or sell the shares and determine what price the customer gets. These firms pay Robinhood for the right to do this because they make money off these trades too. They basically buy or sell the stock for a profit over what they give each Robinhood customer. Now, E-Trade and Schwab do the exact same thing, but really interestingly, for each share of stock traded, Robinhood makes four to 15 times more than Schwab. The question is why? Industry experts say they think it's likely because the trading firms think they can score easier profits from Robinhood's customers. Meanwhile, co-CEO Vlad Tenev, who has come and spoken before at a Strictly VC event, declined to tell the Times why Robinhood makes more than its competitors from Wall Street firms. Either way, the story's takeaway, in the words of a Navy medic who talked to the Times and who has lost many tens of thousands of dollars on Robinhood, quote, They make it so easy for people that don't know anything about stocks, he said. Then you go there and you start to lose money. Electric vehicle company Rivian announced today that it has raised $2.5 billion. The company has raised almost $6 billion in total, $5.35 billion of which has come in the last year and a half alone, with big corporate investments from the likes of Ford, Amazon, and Cox Automotive. Founded in 2009, Rivian remained in stealth mode until the LA Auto Show in 2018 when it debuted the R1T, a pickup, and the R1S, an SUV. Rivian's plan is to sell these vehicles next year at a price of approximately $70,000 before electric vehicle tax credits. It is also developing an electric delivery van for Amazon, which has placed an order for 100,000 of the vans with deliveries scheduled to start in 2021. 
Earlier this year, Lincoln Motor, the luxury brand under Ford, canceled plans to build an all-new vehicle based on Rivian's platform. Rivian and Ford said at the time that this was a mutual decision, supposedly based on the current environment, a.k.a. COVID-19. Rivian has a long way to go if it's going to catch Tesla, which has plans to roll out its own truck in late 2021. Tesla's share price has increased nearly 25% in just over a week, and the company's valuation at over $250 billion roughly equals that of Ford, Toyota, General Motors, and Fiat Chrysler combined. It's interesting that it's raised so much money and it's probably worth $20 billion despite not having sold a single car. But what's fascinating to me is, again, this rise of Tesla stock. Alex, I don't know if you happen to see, but just today, Elon Musk's net worth, because he owns like one fifth of the outstanding shares of Tesla, rose by $6 billion. So he's actually now richer than Warren Buffett, Sergey Brin and Larry Ellison. I think I saw in Bloomberg that he is the seventh richest person on the planet at this point. But still far down on the list from Jeff Bezos, who, as you know, Connie, has his own rocket company. <laughs> TikTok, owned by the Chinese company ByteDance, was also very much in the news this week. Today alone, TikTok was on a roller coaster ride as Amazon told employees to delete TikTok from their phones owing to, quote, security risks. They told employees to delete the app from any devices that, quote, access Amazon email today to remain able to obtain mobile access to their Amazon email. The news took everyone back a bit and presumably had corporate chieftains around the country talking in earnest with their own security teams about whether they too had better ask employees to delete TikTok from their phones. But then... Five hours later, another surprise development. Amazon issued a statement saying that, quote, there is no change to our policies right now with regard to TikTok. So what happened? The information says in a new report that what happened was a lot of back and forth between TikTok and Amazon. It reports that senior security executives from both companies jumped on an emergency call in which an Amazon executive said he was caught off guard by the Amazon email, which is very strange. In any case, as the outlet notes, TikTok has quite a bit of clout at this point, owing to its many hundreds of millions of active monthly visitors. And not only has Amazon begun advertising on TikTok, but the two companies recently tested a feature, apparently, that lets people buy things on Amazon. So who knows? TikTok begged. Amazon doesn't want bad blood with the company. We'll see what else comes out from this. Either way, all this talk about security risks is taking hold. The information says that Wells Fargo, the banking giant, apparently sent a note to employees earlier this week telling them to immediately remove the app from their company-owned devices. That note seemingly came on the heels of Secretary of State Mike Pompeo telling Fox News on Monday night that the U.S. is looking to ban TikTok in the U.S. over concerns that it could be used by the Beijing government as a surveillance and propaganda tool. The potential ban would deal another blow to TikTok after it recently went down in its biggest market, India, which also cited security concerns, though the ban also ties to a military conflict along the border between India and China. I think that there is a real risk that this hugely popular and fast-growing platform gets shut down in the U.S. But as I reported yesterday, whether or not the ban goes into effect, other social media players are already benefiting from the threats, with TikTok creators trying to gently nudge their followers to other platforms where they have a presence, including Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, and YouTube. I also noted that Facebook, whose Instagram began losing ground to TikTok in India last year, is most certainly using this opportunity to make up some of that lost market share. It's been rolling out a new short-form video product called Reels after an earlier effort called Lasso fell flat. 
There's also talk that, in addition to security concerns, the U.S. threats are politically motivated, given that TikTok is home to a lot of younger users who tend not to support Donald Trump, and who in fact claimed just two weeks ago to have tricked his campaign into believing that many more people would show up to a rally in Tulsa than did. As John Shahidi, who runs an internet talent agency in L.A., said, Is it a coincidence that with everything going on in the world, the U.S. is making TikTok a priority as we head into this next election? I don't think that's a question anyone can really answer right now, but we did talk with a TikTok influencer and another L.A.-based internet talent agent just this morning to find out how they're responding to all this talk about TikTok. We'll get to that interview in a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. The first step when raising capital is to build an investor pipeline. Founder Suite's Investor CRM sits on a database of 100,000 angels and 41,000 VC firms, family offices, fund of funds, PE firms, and other alternative investors. Trusted by companies and investors around the world, Foundersuite.com combines a database, CRM, pitch deck hosting, investor updates, and deal docs into a simple, intuitive platform. Everything you need to raise capital. Sign up today at foundersuite.com. This week, we're talking with both an influencer and her talent manager, both of whom have very interesting insights into the world of TikTok and the broader social media landscape. Up first, you'll hear our interview with Pearson Wadzinski, a rising internet star with 500,000 subscribers on YouTube, 455,000 Instagram followers, and 4.1 million fans on TikTok. Pearson is part of Amp Studios, a talent agency co-founded by media influencer Brett Rivera, who himself has amassed more than 30 million TikTok fans and a very broad following over the years on both YouTube and Instagram. After talking with Pearson, you'll hear our interview with Rivera's longtime business partner, Max Levine, who pulled back the curtain on his business and shared some thoughts about how the world of influencers may evolve, suggesting we may well see more personality-driven media brands and more one-to-many businesses, wherein individual stars funnel their various channels into a place that their fans can access. It's becoming big business. According to one new estimate, digital content creation is expected to be a $43 billion market by 2026, up from $12 billion just a few years ago. First up, our interview with Pearson. Pearson, thank you so much for joining us today. So I know that you launched your career earlier this year and it has really taken off quite quickly. Tell us a little bit about what you do and for what platforms. So I create content for all platforms. That's YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, and just starting with Twitter and Facebook right now. I basically create content for comedy. My audience ranges from probably 12 to about 24. So it's about the same age as me. I do a lot of videos and pictures, dancing videos, just kind of like a wide range of content. And so you are across platforms, as you mentioned, you're doing different things. You and I talked yesterday about your work week, and I thought it was fascinating. We don't get a look into a lot of influencers' schedules. Can you walk us through a week? You mentioned you sort of plan out a lot of your TikToks on Mondays, and you also spend a considerable amount of time working on your YouTube videos. Yes, I'm a part of a group and we have what's called TikTok Mondays, which is where we all get together and then all create content, helping each other, creating ideas and then filming them. So we have that TikTok Monday established for creating TikToks. 
I will also film a lot of TikToks throughout the day or throughout the week by myself. A lot of my comedy videos I'll do by myself, different impressions. A YouTube video takes the most time, I would say. That's why we only post once a week. I try to focus for Sunday and then I'll film throughout the week, which will take probably, I would say, three or four days, which is about an hour each day. And that that includes coming up with the ideas, actually filming it, and then editing it on the last day, which usually takes me about 10 hours total, which is a lot. It's usually like a seven minute video. I have to get all the cuts perfectly and all the sound effects and everything. So it's a lot of work, but it's definitely worth it. As for Instagram, it's easier only because pictures are very fast content to create. It's not a lot of thinking. You take a great picture and people want to see what you're doing and then you post that. I would say that takes the least amount of time, but I'm constantly, constantly thinking of new ideas throughout the week. I don't have a day off. I'm always thinking of new ideas. If I'm, if I'm walking down the street, I'm getting inspiration from everywhere I go. It's not just I sit down and that's what happens. It's constantly on my mind. How do you think about the consumers that are watching you on different platforms? Do you have a mental image of what your YouTube user looks like versus your TikTok user? And also, how do you structure the, that content so that it's different for each platform? I know my age range that I basically have. I try to create content that I would want to see myself. I would never create content that is only trying to entertain other people. I would post what I think is actually entertaining for myself. For YouTube, it's more long form videos. So I'll try to keep it as fast paced as possible because people lose their attention very fast. And that's why I like TikTok. TikTok is a lot shorter videos. It's about a minute max. So Pearson, you and I had talked yesterday because I was asking you if you are concerned about talk of this potential ban of TikTok in the US. And we talked about whether or not you are hedging your bets. If it's legitimate reasons why TikTok would be banned, if it's actually a national security concern, I would say the safest option is the best option. And we should most definitely do whatever's needed. However, obviously, I make most of my income through TikTok. I have the most fun on TikTok. It's my favorite app. I would prefer, obviously, it not to be banned. Just because TikTok is so different from all other apps, because it has a music library on the app itself, which is not common on any other app just because of copyright problems. If TikTok does get banned, I'll take my talents to other platforms and try to push my fan base over to my other platforms. But I've created a very loyal fan base, I would say, on TikTok. People are very, very supportive. And I I feel like if I were to let them know, hey, go follow my other accounts, many people would do so. As it happens, you've got a 10-year-old fan in our house. <laughs> um, I mentioned to my son yesterday that I interviewed. He's like, really? I love her. She always hangs out oh with Matt Rivera. Oh, that's adorable. <laughs> um, I was wondering, what other platforms are you seeing take off? Triller is now one of the most popular consumer apps in India, for example. Are you on Triller? Are you seeing anything interesting in the U.S.? I'm not on Triller because I think Triller was the very, very beginning. And then TikTok took Triller's place in a way. I'm willing to just keep my eyes open. I heard that Facebook had a new app that they had just shut down yesterday. It was like a competitor to TikTok and they had just shut it down yesterday. I'm assuming to maybe reamp it up and and maybe make some adjustments so that if TikTok does get banned, this app can replace TikTok. I'd seen that they were launching it in India and it's been apparently tried out in France and Germany, in Brazil. It's called Reels. 
have you had a chance to play around with it at all? I haven't yet, but I'm definitely looking into it. Everyone who I'm hanging out with, everyone who I'm creating with is always on their toes. It's like what happened with Vine. Everyone was too late to Vine and they missed their chance. And so TikTok, finally, I, I got my chance to to hop on this trend early. So now it's kind of a learning lesson to always be looking out for the new hip apps because you never know where it's going to come from. So now it's anytime there's a, a talk of something, you have to be aware and, and be listening. Do you ever have any interaction with TikTok? Do you ever talk to the company or are there any representatives that reach out to you that try and keep you interested in the platform? My manager usually is in touch with TikTok. He'll relay the information to us. He just got in touch with TikTok and he's going to let us know what's going on right now. He believes it was just a glitch in the system. Nobody is ever encouraging us to post on TikTok. There's no person saying, hey, do this, do this. TikTok is a very fast growing platform. And so we're obviously going to take advantage of that and start posting consistently, regardless of if TikTok is trying to encourage us to. It seems like YouTube has been pretty active in trying to cultivate creators. Do you think that's something that TikTok is missing? TikTok is still in its very early stages. It wasn't until quarantine when everyone was finally downloading TikTok. My mom got TikTok and she's like (laughs) a TikToker now. (laughs) But I mean, YouTube has been around for a very long time. TikTok is still very, very new. I think it's only like two years old or something like that, but it just works. Very new. Yeah. yeah. Very new for, for a social media platform. I don't know if you've heard about the Hype House, but the Hype House mm. is kind of the big group of TikTok. When you think of TikTok people, you think of the Hype House because mm. they're all the best dancers. They push them out the most on the platform. So you've definitely heard of Charlie D'Amelio or Addison Ray. I don't know if that's something that TikTok set up, but if that is the case, then it would be smart. When you think of TikTok, you think of, okay, these young kids, this is how they're maybe branding TikTok is the cute young kids who are just dancing and here to have fun. Right, right. Absolutely. One big party. Pearson, we talked about this a little bit yesterday, but TikTok users said in part that they were responsible for a low turnout at a rally that President Trump had in Tulsa, Oklahoma a couple of weeks ago. And another manager of internet talent on a different platform yesterday said he thinks that the threat of this ban could be payback for that. I just wonder, do you have any sense of your followers' politics or think that there's any merit to that suggestion? A lot of my followers are very young. I don't even think they know who our president is. (laughs) But I mean, for me, I'm kind of neutral with everything. I try to not bring politics into any of my content just because that would create lots of controversy. I, I will voice out my opinion when I think it's the right time. However, I create content to make people laugh, to make people feel something and feel relatable. So I don't love bringing politics to the floor just because I think for me, my content is an escape from all of the madness that's going on. If there's something that I don't agree with or or that I want to encourage, I will absolutely voice my opinion. But when it comes to more politics that are way more controversial, I'll take a step back and let people who maybe know a little bit more about the topic take the floor. I just wanted to ask how difficult it must be to create content in this COVID world where you can't really go outside and interact with people in the same way that you used to, does it become a little bit frustrating? Most definitely. Right now we're living in the craziest times. And for me, I'm just kind of starting out on this adventure of creating content for a large audience. So right now I have to watch everything that I do all the time, not only with COVID, but also with the Black Lives Matter movement. And I have to be very 
aware of how sensitive people can be right now and just watch what I say, how I say it, where I go, who I'm with. But right now it's a little difficult only because we're limited to how many people we can film with, what we can film. We used to film out in public and we wouldn't have to wear a mask. And so you could see our expressions and what we're saying and our smiles while we're filming. But now filming out in public is a little bit more difficult because you, you can't see those facial expressions and the video is just a little different. One more question. You have all these different platforms that you're working on and it sounds like your weeks are very busy and it's a little bit of a grind. You're churning out and editing all of these videos. Where does this ultimately go? Where do you see yourself in five years? I'm a pretty ambitious gal, pretty ambitious 21-year-old. So I plan on honestly conquering everything. So right now I'm focusing on editing and filming and producing content, creating an audience that we have a great bond with. And eventually I'll maybe venture out into music or acting. I grew up acting and so I, I loved being in front of the camera. So being a content creator was the perfect way to get in front of the camera and get comfortable in front of the camera. Eventually I'll get into acting. It's always been a dream of mine to, to do something like that. I would love to be on SNL someday. I've got big dreams, but we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. That's great. Well, I've seen a lot of your content and I think it's really funny and great. So thank you, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for having me. And now stay tuned for our interview with Max Levine, co-founder of Amp Studios, which manages Pearson and other social media influencers. Max, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. TikTok is obviously under a lot of pressure in the U.S. and elsewhere right now with its parent company, ByteDance, even considering changing its corporate structure, according to the Wall Street Journal. Considering that it's under so much pressure, we're wondering, is it reaching out to talent agencies like yours to make sure you're sticking with it? We haven't heard anything from the TikTok team. I know they have a pretty expensive team. Our direct point of contact for most things is the creator team, but I'm pretty sure that they have their hands full and they're balancing a lot. I know they have a creator newsletter, but I haven't seen them address this as of yet. That's interesting. It almost seems that they should. I just saw that Amazon is telling workers to delete TikToks from devices they use for work, which is pretty crazy. You and I talked earlier this week about talent potentially migrating off of the platform or at least spending a little more time focused on the other platforms on which they appear. Can you tell me a little bit about that? How actively you're talking with them about this? Maybe the second most popular platform to which they might elbow some of their followers in case they have to. I know a, a lot of creators that have kind of grown with the platform are still particularly focused on TikTok. Typically, it takes a year or two for a creator to really build a solid platform elsewhere, Instagram and even YouTube. And TikTok is such an interesting platform and the content is really quick and digestible and it's much different than YouTube, for instance. We're really focused on a variety of content and YouTube has always been a pretty big priority for us. We're hitting around 300 million monthly views on YouTube, which in comparison, maybe is a bit less than TikTok, but the amount of energy and work that goes into that takes a lot more time. We're pretty well diversified, but obviously if something were to happen in TikTok, it would be pretty catastrophic to the creator community just because so many creators have built their platforms on TikTok. When you look at the revenue that's generated by your creators, what percentage comes from TikTok? What percentage comes from YouTube, Instagram, et cetera? That's a really good question. I would say YouTube is definitely the most lucrative platform. AdSense is a pretty big revenue driver. I feel like YouTube has done a really good job in terms of creating a platform where creators can make money. Obviously, 
the content takes a while to shoot and edit and upload. So there is a reward for that ultimately. On TikTok, I would say maybe it makes up for a big, bigger creator who's more diversified, maybe 10 to 20% of their revenue. For someone who is just getting started off like Pearson, maybe closer to 50 to 75% of their revenue. But I think over time, the goal is we don't want one revenue stream from one platform to be more than 10 or 20% of what an individual creator is generating. It obviously takes time to diversify that though. How do the economics work in this influencer business? Do you take a typical agent's percentage of 10%? What are the numbers? Our business model is pretty unique. We manage the content creators, but we also incubate and grow them. So Brent Rivera is my business partner in this and Brent has an audience of 70 million across social media. Brent's really focused on like growing up and coming creators similar to Pearson. So we'll find them when they have a few hundred thousand and they'll grow to several million over the course of a few months and a few years. I am really focused on like building out the business for the individual creator as well as the studio as a whole. Because of that, it's a little bit more than a typical agent fee. Typically, standard percentages for managers or agents are 10 to 25%. Considering the universe of talent that you could be choosing from, how do you decide that somebody has the right stuff? I think when we initially started, I'd say like two and a half years ago, we were really just focused on someone who had a good look or could potentially grow off of Brent's account. And we signed three creators and one of them had 80,000, for instance, and now he has 5 million on Instagram, 10 million on TikTok, 4 million on YouTube. And that went really well. And I think as we went on, we decided to hone in on a few key attributes. One of them is, are they passionate about creating? Do they love editing? Do they love like the nitty gritty? Two is, do they have a really good personality where they can be like a character or we can build out a storyline around them in our universe of content? And three, are they a good person? Do they come from a good family? Because this space, it tends to change people, unfortunately, because they have access to fame, money, things that maybe a typical young person wouldn't have access to. But we just really like to look for grounded people because we want to work with them and build businesses together for years to come. There's quite a bit of burnout in your industry. Something like 95% of influencers drop out at some point. I think that's pretty alarming as well. There's been several waves of influencers mm. at this point. There was the original YouTubers, there was Vine, there was Musical.ly, and now there's TikTok. And there's always been waves of creators that rise and fall with these platforms for better and worse. It's just really hard to sustain that. And I think that's why we look for those attributes because we want people who can really grow and innovate their content and be passionate about it. We don't want this to be burden for anyone. We want this to be fun and lighthearted and we want to give them the resources to help them grow and scale versus their way down and they're burdened by having to create content. I feel like if you create proper infrastructure, that's something that can be, I, I don't say avoided, but we can kind of figure out over time. But unfortunately, a lot of these creators don't necessarily have an infrastructure or they grow in an inorganic rate where they get to five or 10 million in a year and they don't know how they got there. And then they try to sustain it, but it's pretty much impossible. That's really interesting. Well, Pearson had mentioned Monday morning TikTok meetings where you're brainstorming ideas. So I guess that's part of what you mean by infrastructure. Just wondering, have you figured out a, a formula in terms of how much work is sustainable? Fame, as you mentioned, yeah. can change people. It's kind of addictive. Maybe they want to hit the gas in terms of viewers, but they can hurt themselves in the process. So yeah. what do you think is sort of a good, healthy pace? I think for us, when we initially bring on a creator, we try to like integrate them naturally and really just focus on like the low hanging fruit, which is Instagram and TikTok. 
and had them collaborate with creators, learn the process from the best of the best in the world, which is from our pool, Brent Rivera, Ben Azlar, Lexi Rivera. And then once they get more acclimated, we start to integrate them into YouTube content and they start posting on YouTube. But we try to keep it simple where it's like they have one YouTube video a week. They post four Instagram feed posts per week. They would post on their story every day, which is pretty easy content. We really recommend that they build out mini production teams and we help them just so they don't always have to do the filming or the producing or the editing. They're more the personality or the driver of the content, but they have help. So it's not too overwhelming over time. Max, how do you work with the brands? How do you get your creators to create messages for brands that are organic and believable? That's a really good question. And I think it really depends on the brand that we work with. Some are very open-minded and are like, what ideas do you have proactively that could make sense? We've worked with really cool companies like Five Below. And for Five Below, we came to them with an idea where we wanted to surprise someone who's going into college with a scholarship. So we donated $15,000 to sisters who recently lost their dad and set up a education fund for a college. Those are really fun campaigns. There's also other campaigns that are honestly cut and dry. They're pre-baked by the brands and they just come to us for the content creation and distribution element. Obviously the former is more exciting and I think there's a more impactful result, but a lot of these brands take a while to adapt to how content is being created. And how do the brands measure the return they're getting on the influencer investment? It really depends on the KPIs. Bigger brands like Coca-Cola use views or CPMs. And obviously there's engagements like likes and comments and swipe ups that they can track. And then others, maybe more startup oriented companies are really focused on sales or conversions. So it really depends. We're a little bit on the premium side. So we tend to work with those bigger brands or even gaming companies that are trying to drive installs. I think we do well with those types of companies. But yeah, it really depends on the brand and the KPI. And is there a push to connect your influencers with other media, TV, movies, etc.? Also, what are you doing on the podcast front, if anything? It's really interesting. Several years ago, this space was like, okay, if you build an audience on social media, you need a transition into the traditional entertainment landscape. And I think what that entails is an individual or creator or influencer would have to go on a lot of auditions. And it's really a, a job of its own, right? And I think what we kind of realize is if you're to go on, on auditions, this, that, and the other, there's realistically a few percent chance of you getting a role. 5% would be very high. If you kind of look at it the other way, we own our own audience on YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, whatever it may be. We double down on creating content on platforms that we own and building our own businesses and even highlighting formats on our channels. And if they do really well, then we can really just develop it ourselves and shop it to the streaming platforms, the networks, whatever it may be. So I think we're trying to reverse engineer how we go about that process, because if we have the talent, the audience and the content, we can publish it anywhere, whether it's on our channels or on a partner company. Some of our creators have done stuff with Nickelodeon and Hulu and Netflix, and we actively encourage that. But we also want to be cognizant of the time. And I guess in regards to podcasts, I think that's something we're exploring too. I think our creators are a bit younger, so they really gravitate towards what they know and what they know are those aforementioned platforms. But I think we're trying to expand their content palette so they can open up into doing podcasts and variety of content. What do you think about Quibi? They have a lot of money to spend on content, which is great. So I guess 
they could be a potential home. I have a startup background, so I just have fundamental opinions about how you should start companies. I just think if you raise over a billion dollars on a thesis, I think it's inherently flawed and you have to build, measure and learn. Jeffrey Katzberg obviously has a much better resume, but he maybe comes from more of a traditional world where back in the 90s with Disney, they had the distribution, right? So if you create amazing content, you have pipelines to reach hundreds of millions of people. The content world is so fragmented now and it's so hard to get people's attention, especially on a new direct-to-consumer platform. And I I think maybe that was taken for granted a bit. Like you pretty much have a theory about how people would uh, consume content. It's interesting. We follow a lot of the new funding announcements happening. And I feel like for the first time in a long time, I've been seeing more social media get funded. I'm just wondering Mm -hmm. what you're tracking, if you think anything is particularly interesting. You and I had talked earlier this week about Triller in India. I wonder if that's interesting to you or if there's anything else uh, here in the U.S. that you're tracking. Yeah, Triller's definitely interesting. I know it's been around for a while, even when TikTok was in the Musical.ly days. And I always kind of viewed it as Musical.ly or TikTok's lift to Uber. But in terms of short form video, I know there's Byte and other platforms like that. In my opinion, it's going to be hard for any platform to gain critical traction as long as TikTok's out there, especially that is closely resembling TikTok. Something that's been brought up recently, which I think is an interesting idea, and I've heard several companies pitch this to us, it's creating like OnlyFans for like actual content creators. OnlyFans obviously has a stigma for what it is, but if an actual creator who maybe just creates YouTube content wants to create a fan club for their audience and give them exclusive content, whatever it may be, I think that is a model that is being iterated on. I feel like that's an interesting model that has been pitched. I don't think it's gotten traction yet, but I think that could be a thing in the next year or two. Is that something that your company would create, perhaps? I don't think so. We're really just focused on making content and developing content creators and being a content company. I also had a tech company before this company, and I just know how hard it is. There's just a lot of variables, and you have to raise money. So I don't think we would do it ourselves, but there are some companies doing it, and hopefully one of them wins. One last question I wanted to ask was, TikTok's potential ban. John Shahidi appeared on an Axios podcast yesterday, I guess, and he was saying that he thought it possible that talk of this ban is politically motivated. He said, I don't see anybody on TikTok who is a Trump supporter. I don't see any of Trump's representatives on TikTok. Do you think there's any merit to that idea? Yeah, (laughs) really interesting. It's funny. I've talked to a few different people about it and you get like totally different opinions. I think it's very murky and Mm. I think there could be a variety of reasons or motives. Maybe there are some reasons on the privacy. Maybe there are some politically fueled. I honestly don't know. What about Instagram videos? Is that something that's interesting to you? When Vine went down, Instagram video was the short form video creation platform or tool. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of our creators have had a lot of success there. And a lot of our creators do post video content on Instagram, whether short form on their feed or Mm -hmm. with IGTV. But yeah, that's definitely a big priority because back, let's say like five years ago, it was much easier to grow on Instagram through photo content. Now the best way is through video content. And that's really what a lot of our creators are doing because that's the only way to really grow Mm -hmm. on Instagram. Otherwise you kind of like plateau. And have you had a chance to see its newest product Reels? I know it's only available overseas right now, but I wondered if they're trying to give US agents a look. Was that like the TikTok clone or yeah. not like the clone but like their well no it's yeah it sounds like yeah. a clone <laughs> yeah didn't they have lasso too like i know there's a few other I, i've heard of lasso i never looked at it yeah. but yeah this is not their first go around 
I haven't really done too much research in it. A lot of them have the same features. So it's mm-hmm. not like it's proprietary by any means, especially with Instagram taking stories and even Facebook from Snap. It's just how it is working now because right, it's, right, right. not, it's not proprietary. I guess we'll see if it gains traction. But again, like there's just so many short form video platforms out there. Our approach is, is just to wait and see because there's only so much time we have and we kind of have to focus on where the audience is. Just something that I, I personally found interesting, especially in the VC tech social media community as a whole, maybe five years ago or so, people thought there's like a certain connotation toward the influencer space where it's maybe not investable or it's not a scalable business or really the only thing of potential value is influencer marketing. I feel like what I've learned is content-based IP is flexible and it can go from platform to platform. You're not stuck on one thing in one direction and there's a little bit more flexibility and optionality. I feel like there's a lot of really cool media companies that have been popping up that have been doing a really good job at taking advantage of that. Which companies are you referring to, Max? There's a decent amount, but I think Barstool Sports has done a really great job. And there's just really so many out there. A lot of them have raised funding. There's Space Clan, 100 Thieves. There's a lot of buzz around them. Again, I don't know like too much about the ins and outs. There's Brat, Crypt TV. But I think the next wave is personality-driven media companies, which is really similar to Barstool Sports in a way because their content is fueled by personalities. And other media companies that maybe are more so focused on scripted programming or hiring talent, that might be a bit tough because talent have so much power now. Right. And again, they have optionality. So I think if you're building your ecosystem or your company that's fueled by talent, that's a fantastic way to do it. And I think a lot of big creators like Mr. Beast, for instance, and what he's doing and the night media folks, I think that's honestly genius. I feel like there's just more and more massive content creators popping up that are just going to build their own media companies. I'm interested in how you create loyalty among your influencers. Do they have shares in your company? Do they share in the overall success of your venture or are they really benefiting mostly from network effects? We're literally sometimes taking them from 5,000 to millions of followers and that entails building a pretty massive business around it. And a lot of these times, these people are either in school or they're working part-time jobs. Or they're really trying to figure out what's next in life. And I think we work with them to build a career or a business with them. I think it's something that both parties are really over the moon about. There are some things that we are building out. We're starting a a YouTube channel, which I view as our Disney-esque content channel, where all of our creators can appear on. We can have different forms of programming, and they'll share revenue that is generated on it. We haven't gotten to the talks of shares and all that, just because I think, quite frankly, that might be a lot for a young person to digest. We're just really focused on building a really positive culture, making sure they're incentivized and happy and building a scalable company around it. Have you ever raised funding? Are you bootstrapped? Would you want to raise funding? We haven't raised funding. We're profitable and we're just reinvesting back into the company. I don't want to raise a bunch of money with pressure where it's like, okay, we need to bring on 50 creators and then we're going to overwhelm everyone. I think we need to set up a little bit more infrastructure to scale properly because if we were to bring on like 20 more content creators and be like, hey, we can make X amount of dollars off these people, then I feel like we can just overwhelm people and then the entire system can, I don't say break, but it can be affected. Sure, sure. No offense to some of our listeners, but if you can avoid taking VC, good for you. <laughs> anyway, Max, thank you so much. We really had a great time talking to you and learned a lot, frankly. Awesome. Thanks, Connie. Thanks, Alex.
that's it. All the news that's fit to podcast. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend and week, and we will see you back here next Friday.